Father in heaven, that's exactly what we intend to do, both today, tomorrow, and forevermore. God, to rely on your word, Father, to be satisfied, to delight ourselves in your love. So, Father, we do come before you mindful of the many families and those impacted by the tragedies of 9-11, of this recent pandemic, and the many other lessons that so many have encountered that maybe go unnoticed, that don't get the same sort of attention, but continue to draw us back to remind her that this world is harsh at times, and yet beautiful in others. And so, Father, in both seasons of mourning and seasons of joy, we wait for you. Be with us now, in spirit and in truth. Open your word to illuminate our hearts, our souls, and our minds. And be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, it's a beautiful song uh, that hopefully brings encouragement to each of you this morning and will continue to do so throughout the rest of the week. Um, as we do uh, our best to, to foster those lives that are willing to wait for the coming of our King. So much of what we're going to be doing today speaks to that and how it is that we prepare ourselves to be ready and waiting uh, for such a glorious appearing. Um, it's also a, a fun time of year to, to think about the shifting of seasons. I don't know if you guys enjoy this or not, but for me, I love this particular time of year because it, it brings us so much closer to the season of fall. Fall is easily the best season. Can I get an amen? Thank you very much. Uh, and it's so great. And I was reminded of how close we are to that season just this past week. Uh, James was getting ready for school, couldn't find his shoes, case in point to the children's message, and was looking for them. And he went to check in uh, his mom's van. And when he came back inside, he goes, Dad, you've got to go outside. It feels awesome. And I went outside, he was right. I mean, it was, what, 72, 73, and I was like, oh, y'all, it's here, it's close. Uh, but the problem with that is in Texas, you're never really that sure, right? I mean, because you're thinking, okay, it's here, but who knows, we may be right back to triple digits for another month or so. And the weather in Texas is very erratic, and, and it's very difficult to prepare for. And we learned that in a very difficult way back in February, all right, with the winter storm. And uh, many of you know that the winter storm brought a tremendous amount of devastation upon our state and uh, had a tremendous amount of impact on people's lives. I know my family was fortunate. We were spared in a lot of ways. But when you really stopped and looked at the other stories that many people knew or the things on the news and as these pictures that are cycling through remind us, I mean, it, it created a lot of devastation. You had 70% of people that relied on the main state's electrical grid without power, many of whom also had to go without water. People were literally boiling water that was safe to drink, to try to make it safe to drink. People were struggling to stay warm. They were struggling to find food. Uh, more than 100 plus people lost their lives in the midst of this storm. We had uh, a lot of, of challenges as people began to see the ramifications of it. I think uh, it ended up being one of, if not the uh, costliest natural disasters to ever hit. Our state, And so as people began to take in and personally experience the devastation, the question kept coming up, how, how does this happen? Right? Like, how did this occur? And that shifted our focus to ERCOT, right, which is the Electric Reliability Council of Texas. There's irony that the name includes the word reliability. 
And we all learned that name in a season where we discovered it was not reliable at all. And uh, ERCOT ended up releasing a couple months later the reasons for such widespread devastation and what contributed to it. They referenced that 54% of the outages that were experienced were related to uh, equipment just being frozen over. There's solar panels, wind turbines, pipes, freezing, whatever. It was just because none of it was, was winterized. Uh, there were other factors, I think it was about 15%, I believe, that was related to uh, scheduled uh, rollouts or, or blackouts that they were already anticipating doing, about another 14% because of other faulty equipment that wasn't a result of the weather. It was just broken 12% because of fuel shortages. I mean, there were a lot of different reasons uh, that ERCOT kept explaining for the, for the widespread uh, destruction. The net result for ERCOT was that uh, their approval rating dipped to about 6%, and rightly so. Uh, several people on the, the board of directors resigned. The CEO was fired in the aftermath, and all of it was a very harsh reminder for us, this is what happens when you're not prepared. We weren't ready. And, and yet, as, as difficult and as frustrating as it was in the moment, can't we all kind of acknowledge we understood why? Right? I mean, can't you put yourself in those meetings and in those conversations where somebody says, you know, we should spend all this money to winterize our equipment and all this stuff, and people are like, man, it's Texas. Like, that's not going to happen here, and you just kind of dismiss it because it doesn't seem likely, and, and it's that thought that leads you to being unprepared, right? And, and so you can kind of understand, but when you're not prepared, man, people lose their jobs, people get hurt, people even lose their lives. It, it has wide-sweeping impact. Hopefully you can see the correlation, right? And the reason I'm offering this is an illustration. We know that one of the fundamental teachings of Scripture is that Jesus will return. But all of us probably respond to that teaching at some time or another and think to ourselves, but yeah, how likely is that really? It hasn't happened for thousands of years. It's not going to happen in my lifetime. And that's the thought that opens our way up to being and living a life that is truly unprepared. And so the parable today is sobering and encouraging because Jesus speaks to that tendency, speaks to that temptation to be unprepared and to grow complacent and weary. And he calls us back in and says, no, be ready, be watchful, be waiting. It's a very powerful message and one that I think many of us can benefit from. So grab your Bibles, let's turn to Luke chapter 12, and we'll take a look at this particular parable. We were in Luke chapter 12 last week as well, as we looked at the parable of the rich young fool, which I think still serves as some pretty appropriate context for today's message. If you remember the way chapter 12 began, there's thousands of people gathering to hear Jesus to the point that they're actually stepping on one another and, and literally kind of trampling upon one another. And Jesus begins this chapter by offering a various list of warnings and encouragements to the disciples only to be interrupted by someone in the crowd that says, hey, teacher, tell my brother to share his inheritance with me. And that's what launches Jesus into the parable of the rich young fool that we looked at last week. This warning to not store up for ourselves treasures on earth, right? And to not have this tendency to just think you've got many years to live life easily, to eat, drink, and be merry. And, and this all precedes what I would argue is probably one of the dominant themes of the entire chapter where Jesus then elaborates and says, don't worry about what you're going to eat or drink or what you're going to wear. Don't worry about all those things, right? 
here's the main message that Jesus emphasizes in the midst of this discussion. He says, seek my kingdom first. That to me is the theme, right? That, that's the, the linchpin that holds all of it together. And so now that Jesus has elaborated on that point, he shifts into a new parable that drives the point home from another perspective. So, so let's take a look at it. It's going to be starting in verse 35 of chapter 12. Jesus continues and he says, Be dressed ready for service and keep your lamps burning, like servants waiting for their master to return from a wedding banquet, so that when he comes and knocks, they can immediately open the door for him. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. Truly, I tell you, he will dress himself to serve, will have them recline at the table, and will come and wait on them. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them ready, even if he comes in the middle of the night or toward daybreak. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have let his house be broken into. So you must also be ready, because the Son of Man will come in an hour when you do not expect him. So Peter asked, Lord, are you telling this parable to us or to everyone? And the Lord answered, who then is the faithful and wise manager whom the master puts in charge of his servants to give them their food allowance at the proper time? It will be good for that servant whom the master finds doing so when he returns. Truly, I tell you, he will put him in charge of all of his possessions. But suppose the servant says to himself, my master's taken a long time in coming. And then he begins to beat the other servants, both men and women, and to eat and drink and get drunk. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him at an hour he is not aware of, and he will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers. The servant who knows the master's will and does not get ready, or does not do what the master wants, will be beaten with many blows. But the one who does not know and does things deserving punishment will be beaten with few blows. From everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. All right, so this is a parable that to me really is sobering and yet encouraging. And that's really the progression I want us to go on together this morning. Is, is to have a little bit of necessary introspection to see how this impacts us, but then also to, furtherly, uh, or to further be encouraged by what it also implies. And so let's start with what I think is kind of one of three main points I want us to consider this morning, which is the idea of being ready. That first paragraph, before Peter interjects a question, is really all focused on readiness, right? And you see the terms that, that conjure that up, be dressed and ready, waiting and watching. So let me just quickly kind of cover those words. The, the one that he really begins with is that notion of being dressed. And if you're familiar with some of these other passages in the scripture, it's the, to gird up your loins is a very literal translation. And the image is that in this particular day, you had these long flowing robes, and when you would be at ease at home, it was just hanging loose there. You just, you didn't have anything to really to, to worry about, but if you were going to actually begin to prepare yourself to go to work, to travel, and many times go to warfare, you would fasten it into a belt or a sash so that you would be better able to move. And so that's literally what the text is saying. Like, it, don't, don't be in convenience and in comfort at home. Like, like, be prepared for work. Be prepared for travel. Be prepared for warfare. Be dressed for the occasion, which that resonates with us, right? Because we're always dressing for the occasion, and, and it's oftentimes when people fail to dress for the occasion that it really stands out. Many of you are like, why is he wearing a t-shirt today? Right, like we're a church, you know, but we really do. Imagine those situations where you see people dressed inappropriately for the occasion. If you go to work tomorrow and everybody shows up in their pajamas, 
right? It's going to resonate with you. Even if it is pajama day, you're going to be like, this isn't really what we do to work. You know, if you, if you show up to school and nobody's bringing their backpack, you're going to feel like those students are not prepared. If you watch football today and the quarterback runs out on the field and he doesn't have a helmet on, you're like, that fool is not ready, right? We see time and time again that how we dress determines readiness. And, and that's the whole point, right? To, to reference this is to say you should have a vigilant readiness. And that image is complemented with the words of waiting and watching, right? Waiting to anticipate a future event to receive someone is what that word means. To watch means literally to wake up, right? To arouse yourself, to awaken. In some situations, it even means to, to rise from the dead. So it's an alertness. All of it is speaking to this readiness that Jesus is asking people to maintain. And so, so here's the, the general summation of the parable. Right? It says you need to be dressed, ready to receive your master. That means you, you need to not have to be surprised, and be like, oh, I've got to go get ready. Like You need to be prepared to do your master's bidding as soon as he arrives. That includes having these lamps burning. Right? Whenever a master would return home, the servants would go and light the lamps to light up the pathway to the house. When the, na- when the master comes and knocks on the door, you need to be able to answer immediately. You need to be ready. Now, if you demonstrate that, if you demonstrate that readiness, guess what's going to happen? Rather than you being asked to do your master's bidding, he's actually going to serve you. There's going to be a celebration for the fact that you were ready. And what a great thing to be commended for. And so as Jesus begins to explain that, he introduces a similar image that kind of coincides with this, which is the idea of this thief in the night, which is often associated with the return of Jesus. And here's the whole point of that imagery, right? Thieves don't announce when they're coming, right? For good reason, because they've all watched Home Alone. Man, if they find out, then like Kevin McAllister is ready, you get paint cans in the face, like you don't, you don't announce when you're coming. So the only way to prevent that sort of break-in is to always be ready. And Jesus is saying, it's like, you're not gonna know when this is, so you have to always be ready. That, that's the summary of the first part of this teaching. Now, here's the question for us, though, as we take that in. What in the world does that mean? Like, what does that look like? Right? The, the first thing that I would offer is to build upon that imagery based upon what we've covered so far in this series on parables. Right? Let, let's think about what it doesn't look like based on these parables we've discussed so far. Here, the person that is not ready is like the one that receives those the, the word of God in those first three fields, right? It's the one that rejects the word of God. It's the one that is constantly falling to temptation or to trial and has no root. The one that isn't ready is the one that is going to be choked out by the worries and pleasures and riches of the world, right? The one that isn't ready is going to try to fit Jesus into an established system and miss the fullness of the new wine in the new kingdom. The one that isn't ready is going to be like the dishonest manager that keeps trying to live according to the ways of the world. The one that isn't ready is going to be the one that tries to store up for themselves, the one that judges other people. All these different things we've walked through have shown us the one that isn't ready. Similarly, it's given us the positive picture. The one that is ready sees that Jesus comes with a new kingdom, with a new power, views themselves and others through the lens of grace and forgiveness rather than judgment. The one that is ready is going to receive the word of God like that fourth soil, They're going to hear it. They're going to retain it. They're going to persevere with it and let it produce something within them. They're not going to store up for themselves treasures on earth. They're going to put those 10 minas to work. Time and time again, we see through the imagery of the parables what it means 
to be ready. And if I were going to give you a summation today or a simple phrase, it would be seek his kingdom first. That's the ready heart. The heart that's going to seek the kingdom of God first. Now that's, that's nice to tie into this imagery of this sermon series that we're going through. But again, what does that look like? Like practically, what does it look like to, to demonstrate that sort of readiness? To seek the kingdom first. Well, honestly, I I think if I were to offer any sort of instruction, especially in terms of what it means for us here, it starts with identity and understanding that we are disciples of Jesus. Like we follow him and him alone. That's who you are. We are disciples of Jesus. And when we commit to following him, something happens in here. There's an awareness to our own shortcomings, to our failures, to our brokenness, our temptations, and we constantly bring them before the Father. We we commit ourselves to a life of repentance and transformation. We lay ourselves bare before the foot of the cross, and we seek a renewal day after day after day. We recognize that we're called to love others, right? And, and, And not just the people that love us, but even the ones that don't love us. We are called to demonstrate a radical and unyielding love for the neighbor, to fight for those who are in need, to to make a difference on the world around us. We're called to share the good news of Jesus. And as disciples, we're called to make disciples, right? All of these things are how we demonstrate that we are waiting and ready for his return. That's why the vision of this church is so important. We're not just looking for things to do. It's, it's, It's a way for us to anchor ourselves into being ready and commit ourselves to the work of the Lord while we wait. Right, that we want to be a place for healing, that this can be a place where you can truly come and find the renewal that your heart seeks. That we can be a people who love justice. Right, that we can actually go fight for the orphan, for the widow, for the prisoner, for the hungry, for the oppressed, whatever it may be. Right, and that we can actually believe that God is bringing people into our lives whom we can pour into and we can see life change and baptisms and transformation because of disciples are being made. All of those things are ways for us to demonstrate we're waiting and we're ready to do the master's work. These are the things that are incredibly important. If I were to try to to offer maybe just some guiding questions that we can gravitate towards to to evaluate ourselves if, if we're actually ready, if we're living with that mindset. Like one question that you can maybe continually return to is, in this moment, that I'm living, whatever this moment would be, wherever it finds me, whatever I'm doing in this particular moment, is it a moment that I can joyfully present to Jesus? Right, apply it to not just a moment, apply it to your life, the direction of your life, the aspirations of your life. Is this the life that I'm cultivating that I can joyfully present to Jesus? See, part of understanding what it means to be ready is recognizing that there will be a day where we will give an account for what we've done with our lives. Accountability is a huge aspect to living a life that is ready and willing and waiting. And that's really kind of where Jesus takes it, right? So the question from Peter is what serves as the transition. Transition. Peter chimes in and he's hearing Jesus offer this teaching. He goes, oh, wait a second. Are you sharing this parable just for us or for everyone? Right, so remember the context. There's thousands of people gathering around There's people in the crowds and the disciples, and and Peter's basically wondering, is what you're teaching right now for everyone that's here or just us? And Jesus does what he typically does is he answers a question with another question. Sure, it drove him crazy. 
But he launches into another series kind of of images and parables. Only there's a subtle difference, right? You still have some common themes of this relationships of master and servants, but there's a little bit more of a nuance in the second paragraph, right? What you see interjected here is now there's a reference to a wise manager, right, who's still a servant to the master, but has apparently been entrusted with certain responsibilities. The one that is referenced here on the front end is to allow the food allowance to be given out at the appropriate time, right? And if you fulfill that responsibility, then you will be entrusted, you'll be put in charge of all the possessions, But the other manager, the other servant that has certain responsibilities, if that one tries to take advantage of his master's absence, and because, you know, my master's taking a long time, we're coming back, and starts to treat other people harshly and begins to indulge in his own pleasures, well, that one's going to be dealt with very severely. So notice, right, there's there's now a, a nuance towards responsibility that has been given to various servants. Now, also what I would point out is that the details of those responsibilities relate to how they're treating others. Right, so the first one, the wise manager, is treating others well, caring for them, feeding them. Right, the one that isn't acting wisely is treating others harshly and acting according to his own self-interest. Very important lesson there in, in terms of how we're supposed to demonstrate our readiness is how we treat others. But when you fulfill to meet those responsibilities, when you fail to fulfill those responsibilities that have been given to you, the consequences are drastic. If you read through that second paragraph, what leaps off the page, at least what does to me, is the punishment, right? The one who fails to do this will be cut into little pieces and assigned with the non-believers. Like, Jesus doesn't mess around. I know we like to try to just cut those parts out and not reference, but like, his point is very clear. It is a very serious thing to neglect the master's will when you know it. And it's there that he really answers Peter's question, the following verses. Follow, follow along here. This is where he really clarifies it in verse 47. He says, The servant who knows the master's will and does not get ready or does not do what the master wants will be beaten with many blows. But the one who does not know and does things deserving punishment will be beaten with few blows. From everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much will be asked. So here's what Jesus just said to Peter. Both. This is for everyone. Everyone, to a certain extent, is going to have to give an account for their life before Christ. But but yes, there is a distinction. The disciples, it'll be different. Because more has been given to you. You have a greater awareness of the master's will. There's going to be more that has been entrusted to you, so more is going to be expected of you. And what we have here is an answer that tells us that accountability is proportionate to awareness, right? That there are different degrees of accountability. Not everybody's going to be held to the same standard. Now, maybe that makes you bristle a little bit. And you're like, I don't know how I feel about that. But I think it's fairly intuitive, especially as a parent, right? We, we have different degrees of accountability all the time. All right, I mean, I've got three kids. My two oldest kids are 11 and 9, which means that a lot of times they're receiving the same lecture. They're just in this similar life stage, so they get a lot of the same lessons, you know, and we're just kind of talking to both of them. Not so much with my youngest one, who's four. I have different expectations of him, and one of the things that will frustrate me to no end is when all three of them are just like picking on each other and pestering each other, and the two older ones come to me complaining about the four-year-old. I'm like, he's four. 
well, that's not fair. I'm like, no, it is fair because he's four. I expect more from you because you're 11 and nine, right? Like we do this all the time, right? We have degrees of accountability based on what people know. And the other reason I love this, to be honest, is it answers that question that a lot of people like to throw out there. Well, what about the guy that's living on a deserted island that never had a chance to hear about Jesus? What happens to him? A lot of times when I hear that question, which is often presented as like a trap, right? Like, can, can we really say Jesus is the only way and all that stuff? A lot of times when I hear that question, I think of this. And I think to myself, well, I'm pretty sure God knows that. And I'm pretty sure God will take that into an account. And so I don't know that it's really worth our time sitting around pontificating about what's going to happen eternally to the man, fictitious man that sits on an island and never has a chance to hear about Jesus. Really where we need to be going is what about us? What's going to happen to us who do know? What's going to happen to us who, who have been given many opportunities to hear and to know? What about those folks that find themselves living in a context where they're not struggling to figure out if the Bible is actually in their language. They can actually pull it up on their phones and read it in 450 different translations in their own language. What about the people that live in a county where there's 1,700 churches on every street corner? People that can go to camps and conferences and devotionals. and Bible. What about those folks? What's going to happen then? That's really where the question should go. Because the main premise here is that there is this degree of accountability based on what has been entrusted to you. I love the way that one author puts it. His name is John Nolan. Here's how he says it. He says, the gifts of opportunity create the demands of responsibility. Let me say that again. The gifts of opportunity create the demands of responsibility. That's what Jesus is saying. And so let me, let me boil it down for us, church. We have been given tremendous opportunity. And with that comes tremendous responsibility. And so whether or not you are truly demonstrating a life that is ready is really by answering, how am I using these opportunities that have been given to me? Am I, am I truly demonstrating a belief and a confidence to commit myself to the Lord's work to make disciples, to follow him, to confess my own brokenness, to advocate for the oppressed. Am I actually doing that? Or am I trying to take advantage of what is a perceived absence and a delay in his return? And that's the question. What are you doing with the opportunities that have been presented to you? Because make no mistake, church, he will return. Now, that's the part, though, for me that I want us to use as an encouragement. It's definitely a sobering text. It's one that demands introspection, but I really also believe it brings hope, right? Because embedded and implied within this parable is the undeniable truth, the master will return. And that is what brings us hope, especially in a world like today, right? When when we live in a world like the one we're living in where we're constantly reminded of wars and heartache and disease and hostility and division and all these different things, you and I can find encouragement by reminding one another that Jesus will come and make all things new. And so whatever it is that you carry, whatever burden that you're shouldering, like Jesus will come 
and will make all things new. So we should long for that. We should desire that. Those moments where we begin to think to ourselves, okay, I want to give up. I'm, I'm growing weary. We need to remind ourselves to wait patiently because Jesus will come again. I love the way that we're reminded of this in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 9 encapsulates what Jesus did when he first came in the flesh, but also draws us into the hope of his second appearing. Let me read it for you. Hebrews chapter 9 says, For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. Now, nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again, the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But he has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many, and he will appear a second time. He will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. You will come again, church, to bring salvation to who? To those who are waiting. Right? And so when we go through this life and we begin to grow weary and we want to give up and we want to uh, begin to just go in the way of the world or whatever the temptation may be, once again recalled, fix your eyes on Jesus. Don't grow weary and lose heart. For Jesus will come again. And so there's, there's one last element that I think really helps us demonstrate that sort of readiness, to help us navigate a world like the one that we find ourselves in. And it's actually found in ritual. Now, you know, rituals are really important. And a lot of times we, we don't contemplate the, the role that they play in our lives, but we are constantly infusing rituals, both big and small, into our lives. Right, we do this on so many different occasions. Think, <clears throat> think about athletes, right? Before they walk up to the plate, before they step out on the court or walk onto the field, they've got rituals, pregame rituals. They eat the same food, they listen to the same music. Sometimes it's actually in the moment. They'll go through a similar routine before they get ready to hit or they follow a similar routine before they shoot a free throw. And it's not just athletes, right? Business people, before they're gonna make a major pitch or a presentation, right? They may go through a certain routine or a ritual to help prepare themselves. Every Sunday, I have a ritual. It is, it is like clockwork for me. I follow a certain, certain rhythm and routine and ritual and prayer so that when I stand on this stage, I am prepared and ready to deliver God's word faithfully to you. Right? Rituals help us in those moments. And, and folks have studied this. In fact, I came across an article that was written in Scientific American by Francisco Gino and Michael A. Norton, who are two Harvard Business School professors. They wrote this article back in 2013, but they, they talk about the importance of ritual. Here's what they say. They say, think about the last time you were about to interview for a job, speak in front of an audience, or go on a first date. To quell your nerves, chances are you spent time preparing, reading up on the company, reviewing your slides. See, people facing situations that induce anxiety typically take comfort in engaging in preparatory activities 
including a feeling of being back in control and reducing uncertainty. Recently, a series of investigations by psychologists have revealed that intriguing new results demonstrate that rituals can have a causal impact on people's thoughts, feelings, and behaviors, right? So the point is, when you find yourself in a situation that's uncertain, that's inducing anxiety, rituals can give you that sense of control, that sense of an anchor, that sense of, of some sort of preparation and readiness for what's about to take place around you. The, the article cites what I thought was a very interesting example. This came from an anthropologist that was observing an indigenous group in the South Pacific Ocean back in the early 1900s. And they captured some of the findings. They said that when these people were preparing to go fishing in turbulent, shark-infested waters, they would perform specific rituals to invoke magical powers for safety and protection. When they went to the calm waters of a lagoon, they treated it like an ordinary event and didn't perform any rituals. The anthropologist suggested that people are more likely to turn to rituals when they face situations when the outcome is important and uncertain and beyond their control. That stuck with me. And it stuck with me because I felt like, you know, sometimes this life, when you live through tragedies like 9-11 or a pandemic or your own personal struggle, pain or hardship, feels like you're living in shark-infested waters. How many of us could sit here today and acknowledge and confess the uncertainty of tomorrow, the worry that accompanies us because of whatever burden we carry, whatever question that remains unanswered. And what this is reminding us is that a lot of times when we face those things that seem beyond our control, one of the greatest things we can do to ready ourselves to endure those environments is to go through ritual. Those patterns, those rhythms anchor us. They remind us. They prepare us for what's ahead. And so that's how we're going to conclude our time in worship today, is by engaging in the ritual that has guided the church for thousands of years to accomplish just that, to ready our hearts, to engage this world, and to wait for our King. This morning, we're going to come to the Lord's table. We're going to share in the Lord's Supper together. And the Bible's really clear. When we gather together to do this, there are certain things we're called to do. You're called to examine yourself. You're called to, to admit those anxieties, those concerns, those worries, those imperfections, those failures, those mistakes, to lay them all bare before the cross. And as you come before the cross, you're also called to remember his sacrifice, the new covenant that was sealed in his blood. Right, this, this promise that reminds us that the punishment that brings us peace was upon him. The Lord saw fit to lay upon his shoulders the iniquity of us all and that by his wounds you and I are healed. We are called to remember his sacrifice. But you know what else you do when you come to the Lord's table? When you share in the sacred ritual, you're called to be joyful. Right, Because we, we know that death doesn't win. We're called to be reminded that that sacrifice led to an empty tomb. That he conquered the grave and as a result God made Jesus both Lord and Messiah. And we're called to come to the Lord's table and remind one another that he will come 
again. That as we give gratitude for this sacrifice of bearing of sins, we know that he will appear a second time and he comes to bring salvation to all those who wait on him. That even Paul encourages the church in Corinth, whenever you eat this bread and drink of this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. And so we gather together and we engage in this ritual to ready our hearts and to declare to one another, we will wait on the Lord because we know he comes again. And we will proclaim his death until that glorious return. And so as we prepare to enter into this moment, let me encourage you with the words of 1 Thessalonians 4 that put such a beautiful picture to this. It tells us that the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And after that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. As we approach the Lord's table, let us offer up that prayer that we so desperately need. Lord Jesus, Come quickly, for we are waiting for you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the opportunity to serve, to commit ourselves to the work of your kingdom. Father, to have the opportunity to be healed and transformed, to be a light in a darkened world, to share of your hope. God, we pray that as we commit ourselves to such a task, we would do so in a spirit and a mindset that recognizes your imminent return, not according to our time and expectations, but according to your sovereign plan. So help us to be a church that is ready, that is waiting, that is watching. And Father, let us anchor ourselves in the hope that you will indeed make all things new. And so we trust in you. And we plead, Lord Jesus, come quickly. We wait for you. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.